I want to say this before we jump into this parable. We started it last week, so if you missed last week's, you may need to kind of watch it. We'll give you a quick summary, but uh, there's more to it. I, I recognize that when we pick a, a topic or a parable or a passage to talk about on a given Sunday or a couple Sundays in a row, that that, that specific uh, topic or the very thing that we're talking about may not have anything to do with what you're wrestling with, spiritually speaking, or where God's helping you grow. And that's one of the tough things about, you know, church communities and pastors having to preach and picking topics and passages of scripture. I mean, I I may talk about something that you've dealt with and put to bed and handled, and it's not really an issue for you, but it could be that there's a a way that it applies that I'm not even talking about. I can't tell you how many times somebody comes out of the service and says, you know, boy, it really spoke to me when you said, and they'll say a statement and I'll, I'll think, well, I I never said that, but whatever. (laughs) And that's, that's how God works. That's how God works. So I know that between my mouth and your ears, the Holy Spirit does this thing. And that's, that's what I'm hoping and praying for. And if you have been wrestling with resources or money or security, all those kinds of things, and obviously this parable that we're into is kind of a big deal for you. But if that's stuff that has not been stirring in you, my hope is that God will just kind of translate, do the translating and uh, give you something to wrestle with because it's in the friction where growth happens and where we find God. It's in the, the places where we feel, I don't know, a little bit of uh, unsettledness or discontentment where then we seek and then we go after something more of who Jesus is. And, and that's, that's my hope. So this parable that, you know, we're in the hidden in plain sight, it's all about parables. This parable, we touched on it last week. This is how Jesus starts it. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a, a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs And one day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. And so Jesus tells this long story, uh, very unique parable. It's only only in Luke. And this parable has some, some things that happen in it that are kind of unsettling. And I think it's probably the kind of story that a rabbi wouldn't normally tell. Usually the moral is very obvious and there's, there's no ambiguity about it. But when Jesus tells this story, there's all sorts of uh, what and where's this come from? It kind of knocks us off dead center, if you will. And so this manager is about to lose his job and he's about to lose his job. Jesus says this, the manager, this, this gentleman who's about to be an employee, thought to himself, now, now what am I going to do? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches and I'm too proud to beg. It's a, it's a great line. And uh, Motown thought so too. And so this, this, whole, this whole scenario has the manager thinking, what, what, what am I going to do in the future? How am I going to provide for myself? And some of you have been in that situation before where something changes and you begin to wonder, uh, you know, how am I going to pay my bills? How will I make ends meet? How will I retire? Um, what's going to happen to me? Uh, because often, whether we want to admit it or not, we place our security in, in what we have, what is ours, what belongs to us. And so we, we reason or we reckon that if something happens to me, I've got this in savings. When retirement comes, I've got this waiting on me. My boss has said I'll be the you know, last person that he furloughs. Whatever it is, we have this sense that what has been promised to us or what we have belongs to us. First mistake but then that follows that our security or our comfort comes from those things. And this is the position that this man found himself in. He believed mistakenly that, you know, his job was good, everything was solid, 
and his income. So now he's in a place of insecurity and he begins to scramble. What, what am I going to do? So it occurs to him he's got a plan. Jesus tells the story in detail. Essentially what he does is he invites all of the uh, people who are in debt to his boss, this rich man, he invites them into his little accounting office and slashes their, their, their debts by as much as 50%. And he is ensuring that when he finds himself on the street, he will in fact have a bunch of people in his neighborhood or his friends or people down the street or in town that will, in essence, owe him and he'll be taken care of. Well, of course, the rich man figures this out when he sees the books and he understands that some shenanigans have gone on. And this is the end of the parables, the last statement that Jesus makes that would be considered part of the story. And he says this, the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And that's the NLT. I love this translation, though, because this, uh, this makes it clear that the rascal was dishonest, of course. But Jesus upholds this idea of him being shrewd. Now, this is the part where we have to begin to wrestle with, why would Jesus tell a story and the hero is dishonest? Why would he do that? Why would Jesus allow us to kind of uh, see that the, the main character, this rich man, everybody else is a supporting character, um, why would he allow us to think that his estimation, the rich man, the employer, actually gives credence or a good reputation or kind of a pat on the back to this man, even though he was dishonest? And like we said, it's, it's unsettling, it's disorienting. So we asked you last week to ponder the answer to this question. And I hope you did because um, where we're going today, it will have been very helpful if you have done this. Um, what is your relationship with money? And we want you to ponder this because um, in your imagination, you can at least imagine a future that is not the one that you have now, that is you know, full of abundance or maybe full of poverty, and you've imagined both probably, that is full of twists and turns or ups or downs, financially speaking or security-wise. And in all of those imaginations, you had things like uh, hopes and fears. Uh, you had some feelings about those futures. Maybe you hear a story about a friend who loses it all for whatever reason, and you think, you know, but there, but for God's grace, go me, and oh my goodness, is this, is this my future? All of these things are helpful as you sort out the answer to this question. It, look, Jesus preached a ton about money. When you read the Gospels, he talked about it all the time. And he didn't talk about money because money is important. That's not why Jesus preached about money. The reason Jesus preached about money is because money reveals our values. Money is the, the great eraser between what is spiritual and unspiritual. If you have things in your life that you break into categories of religious and non-religious, that money comes along and just kind of knocks that wall down immediately. Money reveals what you depend on. Money reveals who you trust or what you trust or where you find your security. And so we ask you to play a few games, a lottery game or that little $100 game we talked about last week. Uh, all of those things are ways for you to consider what is your relationship with money. Uh, one of the ways we told you to explore it is to consider what are the values that were passed on to you by whoever you know, helped raise you or teach you about money. Maybe it was a boss, maybe it was a mom or a dad or a grandparent. And then what are your values and how are they different? 
And if you haven't pondered that, you, you will find out as you have those discussions with people who know you well, people that you can't snow, people that you say, well, I think, and they go, no, you don't. I saw how you did it on Tuesday. You don't think that at all. So these are the conversations that help us sort through this. And all of this was for one reason, really, so that you and I could maybe bring our lives under surrender to Jesus more and find a freedom that we have never found before. And that freedom beckons to us, especially in regards to this question. Because most of us have at least a percentage or degree or a little bit or sometimes a lot dysfunctional view of security and money and things like that. And so it opens the door for God to have more of us and we have less of ourselves in the process. And so Jesus ends the parable and he's going to give us a couple big ideas that he wants us to walk away with. And they're pretty important. And it's important that you have wrestled with this question a little bit. So maybe you just started and you'll continue it this week. That would be great. So here are the so what's that Jesus gives us right from his mouth, right in the scriptures about this parable. Okay. Here's the first one. After he's done with the parable, he says this. In fact, let's just say this together, okay? It'd be good for you to remember it. All of us together. For the people of this world are more in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. It's an interesting statement that Jesus makes. And it's one that you ought to ponder a bit. I think most of us have the perception that being shrewd is uh, not a necessarily a positive characteristic, if somebody were to say, I don't know if you want to go to work for that boss, he's shrewd. Or I don't know if you want to handle his money, he's shrewd. I think most of us think, oh, that sounds like a, a taskmaster or somebody that has values that are very selfish or materialistic, that shrewd has something to do with, I don't know, something not very Jesus-like. And yet in this parable, again, very disorienting, Jesus holds up this value of being shrewd and he holds up people who are not necessarily faithful Jewish men and women in his day. And he says, there are people out there in the world who, who just are worldly folks. And they are more shrewd. And Jesus has already held this up as an important thing. He said, this, this man, this rascal, this dishonest rascal, he was what? And Jesus holds it up as an accomplishment, as something that's good. And the, the word, in some translations, is translated wise, but that's not quite the flavor of the word. It, it means, uh, in the Greek, the original language, it means cautious, uh, prudent. It, it means you know, thoughtful and intelligent. It means that you, you have some understanding of what's happening, and you see all the pieces and you know what the best play is. Some of you are like this. But I don't know if you knew that Jesus lauds it as a characteristic or a quality to be pursued or to be cultivated. He does. And that's part of the point of this parable. And it's not the first time that Jesus mentions being shrewd to the disciples or in his teaching. In fact, at one point in time, Jesus is sending his disciples out to do work, do religious work, to do, be with the people, to heal and teach and help them understand that the kingdom of God is here. He's sending them out two by two. And when he does, he tells them this. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as what? 
shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. It's a great statement. I mean, if you don't know this statement of Jesus's, it, it describes how we, followers of Jesus, are to be in the world, around the world, and among the world. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be as shrewd as a snake. I would have appreciated a different analogy in the animal world, but whatever. Uh, serpent in some translations. I want you to be as shrewd as a snake, because we, we think a snake is being conniving. I mean, I, my goodness sakes, read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and you think, this is what Jesus wants us to be? And he says, yes, yes. I want you to be thoughtful, prudent. I want you to understand the lay of the land. In other words, he's saying, look, I want you to do both of these things. No self-serving agendas, but don't waste your time or your money. Understand how things are. I want you to be thoughtful, not suspicious. I want you to don't, don't be naive, whatever you do, but don't be cynical either. And balancing these two things can be incredibly difficult. My eyes are wide open. And so when Jesus says, point of the parable, number one, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light, he's saying, look, I, I want you to be somebody who knows the lay of the land. I want you to be aware of what's happening around you. Not naive. I want you to be somebody who knows what country you're sleeping in, who knows the nature of disagreements among us, who understand what it means to understand somebody else's perspective. And I want you to put all these pieces together and for it to equal wisdom. That's what he wants. That's what it means to be shrewd. It means that you walk with your eyes wide open. And that's what Jesus needs from us today. Now, you remember a day and time when you were naive and in faith maybe. Faith causes us to be naive for some reason. And you walked into a situation and you thought because somebody wore the label Christian, they were to behave a certain way and then they didn't behave the way you thought and you felt hurt or maybe you felt disillusioned about it. I remember the very first church I was a pastor in. Some folks told me what they wanted for their... I was a student pastor. Some folks told me what they wanted for their student ministry, and I was naive enough to take them at face value. I thought they would say what they would mean. And of course, nobody says what they mean, even Christians. We say what we want to mean. We say what we hope to mean. We say what we meant last year. I mean, all kinds of things can be at play there. And I remember the, the disillusionment in my heart when I found out that, oh, this is a little more complex. What Jesus called us to be, uh, shrewd and innocent, is a tall order. And for you and me, the world is in desperate need of wisdom that combines both of these qualities and allows us to operate and navigate in relationships and this is what Jesus wants. And so he says, this, the shrewdness of this man is to be applauded. And he was dishonest. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's part of the deal. He's not saying that you should be dishonest. But he is saying, even in a man who is dishonest, you can find a quality that's worth emulating. And so that's point number one. It's important. And Jesus told this story this way, as we said, to sort of knock us off dead center and keep us a bit a kilter so that we will have our eyes open, our ears open, and we're fully aware of what's going on. So he has one more big idea that he wants to get across, and it really is the point of the parable because there's a phrase before he says it, and it's uh, 
oh, you know, kind of in King James language, verily I say unto you, or, or truthfully I say to you. This is what he says. In fact, the King James is so interesting, I wanted you to read it first before we get to a translation that you can make some sense of. Here's the King James uh, point of the parable. And I say unto you, in fact, let's just say this one together. You'll just feel silly as can be. Let's say it together. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. So here's your homework this week. You're going to make use of the words that are in here that you haven't said in ever. And, you know, things like ye. You can ask your kids, what would ye like for dinner? <laughs> or you could make use of the word mammon, which is, uh, you know, how we understand money. That's why it's translated that. Or, you know, it's time to go to the habitation, dear love. And so, now, if I tell you this is the point of the parable, because Jesus says, and I say unto you, or verily, verily, or truthfully, I tell you the truth in some in some versions. Uh, I don't know that this verse is going to help you much. We could just end it now and just say, live this out, except that you might not walk away with something practical that you can apply to your life this week. So here's another translation, and this will help a bit. The NLT says this. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. And that's probably one of the best translations. I've read every English translation possible of this verse in particular. And this is probably the best one. But even this leaves some things a little bit wanting. Not because it's scripture, not because it's Jesus. It, all of it is true. It just is hard for us to bring it into our current context and our relationships. And here's the reason why. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Most of us aren't Jewish, nor are we rabbis. He lived in the first century, and we live a long time after that. We live in a very different culture. We speak a very different language. Our words mean different things than his words. All of these things are a challenge whenever you open Scripture. Often, that challenge is mitigated by the translation and we can open it up and read it for what it says and just find ourselves moving ahead and just taking it with us, nugget by nugget. But sometimes there are some ideas that are very, very difficult to put into an English word or into our modern minds. And this is one of them. But he's very, even if you just took this at face value, then you would be very, very close to understanding it. But you, you might be mistaken and think, it sounds like Jesus says I'm supposed to go buy some friends. <laughs> Doesn't it kind of sound like that a little bit? Use your money, buy some friends. So that when you fall on a hard time, your friends, you know, will owe you. And you would be mistaken because Jesus has no intent for you to use resources or money in any of those kinds of ways. That would be uh, disingenuous. That would not have the heart that Jesus teaches with on every page of the Gospels. And you would have misunderstood what Jesus is saying. But if you were in the first century and you had any sort of Jewish heritage or an understanding of culture at his time, then you would know that what Jesus is saying is very pointed and very simple and very easy to understand. What he's saying is this, and this I think you will remember as well as you'll remember this verse in the New Living Translation. Jesus is saying this, people are to be loved and money is to be used. 
Jesus doesn't highlight the value of money in these parables. He doesn't highlight it in the Gospels when he talks about money. He talks about it, as I said, because it reveals our heart. It reveals our values, and it reveals our priorities. What Jesus is saying, and why he commends this dishonest person, and why we have such a hard time understanding this parable is because we have elevated money to a very high degree in our culture. In fact, it's the king of all things. I mean, it, we, we believe things about money that are even remotely true. They're just kind of true, like this. Money makes everything better. How many of you think that that might be true? Come on, put your hands up. You think it, come on, I think it's true. <laughs> you you, you want to do something and you look at your bank account and go, oh, well, I guess we're not doing that. But when you look and there's money there, you think, oh, this is a better, it's a better day. We get, you, you go to plan a vacation. What's your limit? What's your limit? Money, thank you. And that, that limit, of course, determines whether you're gonna go to, you know, Sedalia or France. Right? They're very similar, by the way. So you should probably just go to Sedalia. And so you could be mistaken and think, oh my goodness, you know, since that thing happened and we made all that money, our life is what? Therefore money is, it makes everything better. And of course, most of us would say, well, I mean, it's kind of true, but it's not altogether true because more money doesn't make everything better. Sometimes more money makes things much more complex, much more tenuous. It can break relationships. And so money moves up and down in our values and even our feelings and attitudes, our orientation towards money, all of these things come into play. It's not a static thing. This is why you wrestle with the question, what is your relationship with money? What is it? And how is it changing? How is it shifting? And so when that happens, it's important to remember that what Jesus is saying, if you are in this world and you want to be shrewd about your relationships and your resources, remember this. People are to be loved and money is to be used. And we invert these ideas far too often. And when we invert them, people become a means to an end. And the end is our security, our retirement, our stuff, our income, our ladder climbing, our savings, the size of our company, you name it. People are to be loved and money is to be used. Far too often when we look at our money or our resources, we see security. We see a goal in mind. We see things like a future that is preferable because of what we have. We see money as the key to freedom. We see money as the key to peace. Money is the key to comfort or even to hope. And we inadvertently, we don't mean to, it's not because we're materialistic jerks, it's just because of the nature of existence that we often invert these. And when we do, people become a thing to be used and money becomes something that we love. When you read the Gospels and you see how Jesus talks about money, it becomes pretty clear. Jesus believes that, that money is a tool. That's all, just a tool. It's just a tool, something you use. That's it, that's it. That's why... It's not scandalous that this dishonest rascal swapped some accounts around and now he's got some place to sleep on Monday night. This is what money is. It is a tool. And it is to be used in a certain way for certain things. 
Money is not your security. It is not your peace. It is not your hope. It is not your comfort. But you can mistakenly fall into the trap in believing that it is. And so Jesus wants you to know that people are to be loved. And money is a tool to be used for lots of things. It's incredibly useful. You can do lots of things with money. But if it becomes something more than a tool to you, then it's in the wrong place. I have lots of tools in my garage, more than I can use and even know how to use. I bet you have a few tools around your house to use for a variety of things. But if you were to walk into my garage, you know, my dad would always say as a craftsman, dad was a woodworker, um, not by trade, by hobby, and, but an engineer by trade, which made him an excellent woodworker by hobby. Dad would always say, you have to use the right tool for the job. If you don't, you're going to get hurt. You will hurt yourself. And he didn't mean emotionally or spiritually. He meant, well, the scars on his fingers told the story of the many times that he found himself in a spot where he didn't mean to be because he was in a hurry, didn't set up the fence or use the right tool or grab the saw that he needed. Money is a tool. And Jesus, through the Gospels, even tells us what it's supposed to be used for as a tool. And so not only are people to be loved and money to be used, not only is that true, he also says this, and the best way to use money is in service to what? Loving people. That's it. I know, you gotta eat. Of course, of course, you should eat. I know, you have to pay your rent. You should pay your rent, pay your mortgage. You should be wise with your money. In fact, according to Jesus, with your money, you should be, what's the word? Shrewd with your money. You should not be careless with your money. Same way you wouldn't be careless with any resource that God has given you. This axiom, this truth that Jesus teaches over and over and over again, that people are to be loved and money is to be used, you should be shrewd with it, and the best way to use money is in service to loving people. This isn't a church idea. This isn't just for people who fully believe in the gospel or follow the words of scripture, letter of the law. This is true for all people, all places, and all times. And you can see it. You can see it in practice, in good companies, and you can see it breaking people in bad companies. You can see it in relationships that are upside down where this value has been inverted and the damage it has done to any given family. And you can see it work in ways of beauty in places where people understand this to be true. It's true in every scenario, every place. And so companies, even for-profit companies, that have decided that people are a means to an end, their culture is toxic. The way that they operate destroys. And you see it everywhere. CEOs and HR managers that have learned the truth that people are to be loved and money is to be used, you don't have to be a Jesus follower to believe this. This is true regardless. People that understand that the best way to use money is in service to loving people build companies that thrive on cultures that are beneficial, thoughtful, kind, and loving. You say, well, that doesn't sound very businessy. Well, tell that to the people whose bottom lines are breaking right now because this isn't true in their organization or their family or their relationships. This is who Jesus created us to be. And so you can either work with it or you can break yourself against it. And so Jesus is inviting me and you to be people who understand the value of what it means to be shrewd 
and innocent as doves who love like this and use money as this kind of tool and use it in service to loving people. So my hope this week is that you'll wrestle with this idea again. What's your relationship with money? So to help you get there, let me tell you, we, we told you to play the lottery game. Let me tell you a story of the Clark family. Uh, Illinois, Chicago suburb family, 10 years ago won the lottery. Older, retired couple, 700 million. It was the biggest jackpot at the time. 700 million. Older, retired couple, upper middle class, just like you. And they had this money now. What to do with it? So they paid off the little bit left on their mortgage, took their dream cruise vacation, and put the rest in a family trust. And this is what they did with that trust. They had a few rules for their family. This older retired couple, they had five kids, all of them married, pile of grandkids. And they were all growing up, all five of their kids married. And they sat down with their kids and they said, look, as you know, we have this pile of money. If you've played the lottery game, one of your concerns was, well, do I have to tell my family? <laughs> right? Who's going to come out of the woodwork? And so they said, you know what? We have a plan. We're going to tell the whole family and we're going to put it all on the table and this is what we're going to do. So they sat down with all the kids and all their spouses and they said this, here's the deal. This first year that we had this money in the bank, here's the gift to you. If you are, by the end of this year, full-time employed, then we're going to give you a gift this year. And that gift is equal to your current salary. And it comes to you free. And so for the stay-at-home moms who had decided they were going to raise kids, one was a patent attorney who decided she was going to stay home with the kids. They said, we're going to give you the gift, same with the other moms, one was a school teacher, we're going to give you the gift of your earning potential. And so they, you know, did the comps and looked around. So all 10 of them got gifts equal to either what they could earn as a salary, what they did earn as a salary, as long as they were full-time employed. That was it. And then they said, if you want to receive that same gift next year, which will rise with your income or your earning potential as we go, if you want to receive that same gift, here's what you have to have done the year prior. You have to have given 50% of that gift away to a charity of your choice. And you have to have volunteered in some way, shape, form, or fashion with that charity weekly. I know, right? <laughs> and they said, this circumstance will continue for you as long as you earn money or have earning potential for the rest of your life. Not only that, before your kids who are 16, 17, when they turn 18, we will set up the exact same arrangement with them. And so the first year, the first year this thing's in, in play, 10 people, kids and spouses, get this gift. After five years, that had grown to 13 because the kids that had aged into their little program. After 10 years, after 10 years, there were 18 people that were in recipients of this. And can you imagine the discussion among this family? Who are you going to give your money to? What charities do you think are worthwhile? 
well, this is what we researched. We found this, and we, fa- we discovered that. Can you imagine the philanthropy that will grow over time? After 10 years, their seed money had doubled, even though they had given this gift, this trust set up in perpetuity for this family. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it would be. It never happened. I made the whole thing up. <laughs> totally made the whole thing up. That didn't happen. But it should. It should happen. Shouldn't it happen? I mean, you were excited just thinking about it, weren't you? Come on, you were inspired by it. All fiction, every bit of it. Every bit of it. And if you're going to wrestle with this question, what is your relationship with money, then it must be seen through this lens. And this is the lens. People are to be loved and money is to be used. Uh, You'll forgive me, won't you? You'll forgive me. (laughs) And the best way to use money is in service to loving people. So here's the question that you ought to wrestle with today. Our our hope and our desire is to magnify Christ in, in every possible way. And the only way that happens is when people who have resources at their disposal, whether it's time, energy, love, money, they have tools that they can use to impact the world around them when they decide thoughtfully, generously, self-sacrificially to give to other people, whether it's attention in our lobby, little love to somebody who serves you lunch in an hour or two, somebody in the family gets some attention from you, or maybe it's a gift, maybe it's something financial, that you ease somebody's struggle, whatever it is, that we have made the decision, no matter how we live, magnifying Jesus means that we will love people And we will see money as a tool. And this does something to our values. So what in your values needs to be adjusted today? Where has money kind of slipped into a place of an idol or in some sort of, uh, I don't know, it's a worldly thing, something I'm not giving much thought to. Well, that's not very shrewd. Jesus has called us to live in a way to be as shrewd as we can be and innocent, naive, and loving, unsuspicious in many ways. So our hope is that today, You'll wrestle with this, have some conversations about it, and magnify Jesus in some powerful ways. Let's pray together. Lord, as we consider these things today, our hope is that your love would be front and center in our lives and that we would use what is around us, all the resources that you've given us, whether it's money, time, talent, whatever it is, to magnify your name. We don't do this for our glory. We don't even do this because we are compelled to. We do it because of your love. And your love has so overwhelmed us that we can think of no other way of life. So Lord, there are many of us in the room that have placed money far too high on the scale. If we were honest we would say it's something that we love. Lord, there are some of us that have cast it aside and and just see it as, uh, oh, that King James perspective, unrighteous mammon. And that would spurn the gifts and the resources that you've put in our hands. And so we hope and pray today that we would have a view of Uh, resources and money that is honoring to you and we pray that through the gifts that you've given us 
in a variety of ways, we would use them to honor you. Magnify your name. Help your kingdom grow first in our hearts, in our faith community here at Castle Oaks, and in our community, and to the ends of the earth. This is our hope and our prayer. In the name of Jesus, we all say this together. Amen.